My name's Kevin. I'll be your guest preacher today. Um, it is great to be back. It is, it is, yeah, amen. It is so good to be here. Um, it's just uh, standing over here just as we were singing and happened in the first service too and having that prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Maybe it'll happen again next week, I don't know. Um, but just standing over here and just overwhelmed, um, just looking around and, and just praying, thank you, God, for this church. And thank you that I get to be a part of uh, what God is doing here. Um, I just want to start this morning by saying thank you uh, to all of you who prayed for me and for my family uh, over our extended break this summer, sabbatical, and um, thank you to the elders for the gift of uh, grace in, in rest that we enjoyed through that time. I think we were away for like 11 weekends in a row. Today's the first day back, and, and for about 10 of those weekends, our kids every Saturday night were like, can we go to our church? Can we go to our church? And uh, what a gift that is from the Lord. Uh, kids that want to be at church and especially want to be here at this church. And um, so we're just so thankful for that. If I can take just a couple minutes before we dive into God's Word this morning, just give you a, a little bit of an update about how our summer has gone, and um, I'd like to package it in three R's because I'm a preacher and that's what I do. Um, so the first R is rested. Um, I feel very rested, like physically, emotionally, mentally, I think I'm more rested now today than I have been at any point over the past five years going back to our core group days before we launched this church, and uh, just so thankful to the Lord for that. In fact, one of the biggest lessons that God was teaching me through the summer, and he's still teaching me today, and Lord willing, will teach me for the rest of my life, is that uh, the people who grow the most spiritually are not necessarily those who work hardest for Christ, but are those who rest deepest in Christ. And, and that's what I've been learning. God's been wrecking me with that this summer and, and still working on me in that, and I'm so thankful for that, because when you understand that, like that changes everything. Like when you understand that your hope and your peace and your joy in this life comes not from what you can do for God, but rather what God has already done for you in Jesus Christ, like that gives you a new perspective on everything. And so I am deeply thankful to the Lord for that. So first R is rested. Second R is refilled. Uh, I feel very, very refilled. Um, if I can uh, just be open with you, um, back this past winter and spring, um, I was not in the best place personally. Uh, just working through some things that were going on in my life and things that I was trying to process and think through and deal with. And I am so incredibly thankful to the Lord for the elders that he has raised up in this church because I felt very confident that I could speak to them very openly about all of those things that I was trying to work through. And, and by God's grace, again, thankful for them that they spoke godly wisdom back into my life at a time when I really needed to hear it. And uh, so I'm thankful to the Lord for that. And I'm coming out now on the other end of this sabbatical uh, feeling like totally different. It's like night and day. And that, again, is a gift of God's grace as well. In fact, we were talking as elders earlier this week about our preaching calendar schedule that's coming up. And, and of course, today we're diving back into our series called Looking to Jesus. And I am wired up and fired up about that. So we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But um, Lord willing, we are going to bring this series to a close on Christmas Eve at our Christmas Eve service. So just picture this. End of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22. End of the world as we know it. New heavens, new earth. Like, put that on a Christmas card, right? And so that's where we're going to be on Christmas Eve as we wrap up this series. And then, Lord willing, in the early parts of January 2019, for maybe the first few Sundays, 
um, we're going to spend uh, some time in God's Word um, learning how to deal with some of the more difficult emotions that we experience through the course of our life. And um, my heart in this is, is uh, to be able to teach God's Word to you and what God's Word has to say about some of the more difficult things that we deal with in our lives. And you need to understand that our preaching calendar here is not determined by what I'm going through or by what I'm feeling. And yet, as uh, we talked as elders, we have a, a very strong sense that God is giving us the freedom to move in this direction and speak specifically to what God's Word has to say about how we deal with those difficult emotions within our lives. And so I'm not going to say any more about it right now, except to ask you to pray for me, pray for our elders as we try to discern how best to approach this in a way that will bring maximum benefit for us here in our church. So rested, refilled, and then the third R is ready to go. Anybody else with me? I'm ready to get back into God's Word, all right? So we're going to do that right now. Jeff just prayed for us, but if I can, I'd like to pray for us again as we open God's Word together now. Father, I uh, thank you for the truth of the songs that we were just singing together. Thank you that you have saved me. Thank you that there are many gathered in this room right now who can say the very same thing, that you have saved them in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reality of the song that we sang where you came down into the darkness where we are, into the pit of our sin and when we called your name, you heard us and you gave us new life. You rescued us. You delivered us. You redeemed us. You brought us up from the bottom of the pit and changed us. So Lord, I pray that you would grip our hearts again, grip my heart again with the wonder of my salvation. And that as we open your word right now, that it would just drive us even stronger to a place of worship and praise for all that you have done for us. So Lord, I ask, knowing that the time is short and the battle around us is very real, I ask in this moment as we open your word, would you help us by the power of your spirit to understand what you are saying to us in this passage. And by the same power, Holy Spirit, would you please help us to apply these truths, these realities to our life and to the circumstances that we go through, that we would know the joy and the delight of living our lives in Jesus Christ, for whose sake we ask these things. Amen. Any plan to make society better that ignores the problem of sin is doomed to fail. Any plan to make society better that ignores the problem of sin is doomed to fail. Those were the words of a very wise pastor from more than a few decades ago. His name is Warren Wearsby. And I think many of us in the room would probably agree with that statement. Any plan to make society better that ignores the problem of sin is doomed to fail. There's probably not too many of us that would 
that that would take by surprise, and we would agree with that statement. But in case you're here this morning and you're not totally convinced of the veracity of that statement, let's cast our net out into the world in which we live and see whether or not that statement is actually true. Any attempt to make society better that ignores the problem of sin is doomed to fail. So we look at the communities in which we live. We look at the city and the region in which we live. And on any given day, we can look around us and see things like poverty, homelessness, addictions, abuse, not to mention the countless numbers of other things that we see on a regular basis and how those things repeat themselves in cycles over and over and over again. And for all of the blessings that we enjoy in the places where we live, we come to realize fairly quickly that there is no amount of social programs we can create, nor is there an amount of government funding that we can throw at those problems that in and of themselves will fix the things that are broken right here in our own backyards. And so with some sense of hope, we cast our net a little bit wider still and We see that there are pockets of people all across our province in which we live who are deeply divided about some very important issues that we face every single day, not the least of which is the kind of morality that we are committed to teaching our children within our public schools. We look at issues like that. We look at other issues that are different than that, and we come to realize fairly quickly, even within our own province, that There are no amount of programs and there are no policies and there are no curriculums that we could write that will adequately address the problems that we experience because the solutions that work out for some end up being very deep problems for others. So with some sense of hope still within us, we cast our net even wider still and we find that there are still pockets of people really scattered all across our country who are also deeply divided on some other very important issues such as how our country stewards the finances that we have been given by God and how we steward the natural resources that we have been given by God, how we deal with immigration, how we take care of the environment, not to mention the deeply divisive issues of marriage and the family. Teenagers today can go onto any number of social media platforms and as they begin to create their profiles on those platforms, they are given upwards of 75 or 80 different options about how to classify their gender. And we find pockets of people all across our country who are bending over backwards to accommodate as many of those options as they possibly can. In fact, it's not even really the in thing anymore to live by the golden rule. You know what the golden rule is? treat others as you would want to be treated yourself or something along those lines. The thing now is to live according to the platinum rule because platinum is better than gold and the platinum rule says treat others as they want to be treated. And that's it. Regardless of how right or wrong it might be, regardless of how good or evil it might be, regardless of how holy or sinful it might be, just treat others as they want to be treated. So by this point, if there's any hope that is left flickering within us at all, we cast our net wider even one more time still and we look at the world in which we live and we see wars and we hear rumors of wars and we hear the threat of nuclear wars and we see corruption and violence and discord and we see political maneuvering at the highest levels that hardly ever seems to rise above the level of juvenile name-calling. 
We look at all of those things going on around us and for all of the blessings that we have and that we enjoy in the places where we live, for all of the time and and the effort that we spend praying for those whom God has sovereignly ordained to be in positions of authority over us, we come to realize very quickly that the only place left for us to cast our net is to the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. We have nowhere else to go. And all of this, really, as we scan our world from the community in which we live to the globe around us, as we scan all those places, it serves to highlight one simple bottom line, and the bottom line is this. Any plan to make society better that ignores the problem of sin is doomed to fail. suppose the reason that I've been thinking so much about this over the past week is because of where we are in our series this morning. So if you have your Bibles, take them and open, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're here this morning and you need a Bible, our ushers are ready to put one in your hands. You just need to slip your hand up right where you are. They'll come to you. And uh, if you need a looking to Jesus notebook to follow along with us in the message this morning, again, just slip up your hand. Someone will find you and put one of those in your hands. Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, Jeremiah was a man called by God early in his life to be a prophet for God. In other words, he would be the one called by God to take a message of judgment and repentance to the people of Israel and Judah around him. In fact, Jeremiah's specific mandate was to go to the people of Israel and Judah and preach to them that any effort, any plan that they had to make their lives better or to make the lives of those around them better that ignored the problem of sin would ultimately be doomed to fail. By this point in the history of Israel and Judah, the people have fallen very, very far away from God in just about every respect, politically, economically, relationally, socially, morally, spiritually, in every possible way, the people have fallen very far from God. And it's into this context now that Jeremiah is being sent by God to preach this message of judgment and repentance to the people. In fact, the first 28 chapters of the book of Jeremiah is just this long catalog of all of the ways that the people have deliberately turned away from God and turned toward their sin. And as with any prophet, Jeremiah's life in ministry was not easy. He faced multiple threats against his life from the people who knew him best because they were tired of this message that he continued to preach. Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel and Judah for more than 40 years. And over the course of those 40 years, only two people responded favorably to the message that Jeremiah preached. Just think about that. Two people over more than four decades of ministry. During that time, Jeremiah came to be known as the weeping prophet. He cried a lot, and if he only reached two people over 40 years, we would probably cry a lot too. And the weeping prophet, that nickname was certainly not um, an indication of his masculinity or the softness of his manhood. If anything, that was an indication of how deep the grief was in his heart that the people he loved so much would refuse to turn away from their sin and turn to God. I mean, when you think about it, it takes one extremely tough hombre to keep preaching the same message of judgment and repentance to people who hate you for more than four decades and only two people respond in the way that they should. And yet that was Jeremiah's life. And so now, by the time we come to Jeremiah chapter 31, God is coming to the people. He's coming to the people through Jeremiah and he's giving them a message to say that there is hope for them. 
He's coming to the people and he's saying that for all of the ways that they have sinned, for all of the ways that they've wandered, for all of the ways that they have coasted, for all of the ways that they have drifted away from God, God now is coming back to the people and he's saying, I have made a way for you to be in relationship with me. God is saying, for all of the ways that you've tried to make your life better and the ways that you've tried to make the lives of those around you better, but you've ignored the problem of sin, God now says, I am coming to you and I'm going to take care of that greatest problem that you could not take care of yourself. God says, I'm going to take care of your sin. And in the process, God makes five guarantees to his people. Makes five guarantees to those who will turn away from their sin and turn to him in faith. And these five guarantees, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, these five guarantees are true for the people of God today as well. So you can be absolutely, 100%, totally certain that these promises are for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 31, follow along with me as we read, starting at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and shall then return to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Five guarantees that are true for all of those who have turned away from their sin and turned to God through faith. Here's the first guarantee. Number one, we are loved by God. Now, don't pass over that one too quick. Let that sink in. We are loved by God. God here in this passage is making a new covenant with his people And as we've made our way through this series, through the Old Testament to this point, we know that God has made a series of covenants with his people, most notably with Abraham and Moses and David, but now he is making a new covenant with his people here in Jeremiah 31. One of the better definitions of covenant that I've come across recently is this up on the screen for you. It says, a covenant is a relationship rooted in God's initiative in what he has done for the people 
but looks for a response from the people. So a covenant is rooted in God's initiative. God is the one who begins it. God is the one who starts the process in what he has done for the people, but looks for a response from the people. So try and picture it like this. Imagine a man and a woman entering into the covenant relationship of marriage. And they enter into that covenant relationship of marriage because they have expressed their love to one another. They have expressed a commitment to be devoted to one another for the remainder of their lives. That's why they're entering into this covenant relationship of marriage. And Lord willing, when you enter into that covenant relationship of marriage, when someone else expresses that kind of love and devotion and commitment to you, you then are motivated to give that kind of love and devotion and commitment back to the other person. That's how seriously God takes the covenants that he makes with his people. It's like he's entering into a marriage relationship with them. They are committed to one another. In fact, God makes reference to that in verse 32. He refers to the covenant that he makes with Moses all the way back before, years before on Mount Sinai when he gives the Ten Commandments and the law to the people. And God says, verse 32, that the people broke the covenant though I was their husband. Like This is how seriously God takes these covenants with his people. Notice here in this definition that a covenant is rooted in God's initiative. Again, that means God is the one who takes charge. God is the one who starts this process. In fact, you can go back through this passage later today, and I would really encourage you to do this, and just read through verses 31 to 40 again, and you'll find at least 21 times where it makes reference to God. God did this. God did that. God took the initiative. God stepped out first and came to us. God did this for his glory. God did all of this. He took the initiative, and it helps us to understand that the only reason we know God, the only reason we know his love and his mercy and his grace is because God came to us. God took the initiative, and what what better way to begin this passage? This is like a megaphone announcement to every single one of us right now that you are loved by God. Like, everything else that comes out of this passage is built on the foundation, is built on the reality that we are loved by this glorious God. Jeremiah actually makes reference to that earlier in chapter 31. In verse 3, um, he says this, Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Like there, there's so much about God's love that we just cannot fathom. The, just the awesomeness and the fullness of God's love. In fact, here in this verse, he says it's everlasting Like God has this unending love for unlovable people. Who are the unlovable people? We are. And yet God is coming to us right here and he's starting with, I have this unending love for unlovable people. And and knowing that that would always be the case, knowing that we would always fight against our sin and there would be so many times where we would lose that battle against our sin, God now is coming to the people and he's saying, I choose you, I love you. God chose love. Like we need to understand, loved ones, that God starts with yes. 
God starts with, yes, I love you. Yes, I want to know you. Yes, I want you to know me. Yes, I want to be in relationship with you. We need to understand that God doesn't start with no. Because sometimes we have this in our head and in our heart that that God is always angry at the sins that we commit. He's always disappointed with us because of the ways that we turn away from him. And, And we have this thought in our mind like, how could God ever use me? How could God ever do anything through me? How could God ever want me? How could he ever forgive me for what I've done? But what we need to understand is that God starts with, yes, yes, I love you. Yes, I want to be in relationship with you. See, we look at God's anger and God's wrath against sin, and we need to understand that those are important parts of God's character, but they are not the only parts of God's character. And the message of the gospel is that there is hope within our hopelessness because God loves us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. So we look at this verse and we see that God's love is everlasting, but notice what he also says here. He says, I've loved my people with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. So his love is everlasting, but his love is also unfailing. He says, with that love, I have drawn you to myself. That word drawn there is a word that Jeremiah would use again later in Jeremiah chapter 38 to describe that time in his life when the people of Israel and Judah were so fed up with him because he kept preaching this message of repentance and judgment against their sin. So they got so angry with him that they took him and they threw him into a cistern threw him into a pit. And the Bible says that when Jeremiah landed at the bottom of the pit, he started to sink into the mud. But then one of the two people over the four decades of ministry who responded well to his message, one of those guys comes and throws ropes down to the bottom of the pit. And Jeremiah holds onto the ropes while this guy draws him out of the pit, picks him up from the bottom of the dark, dirty, muddy pit. Loved ones, this is an illustration of what God has done for us. The only difference is that God does not throw ropes down from heaven and hope that we can hold on long enough until we make it up there. But instead, because of the great love with which he loved us, God has come down to the bottom of the deep, dark, muddy pit where we are sinking in our sin, in the person of his only son, Jesus Christ, and he, by his strength, has drawn us up from the bottom of the pit, and he has saved us. And why does he do it? Because he loves us. Oh, man, do you see this? God starts with yes. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now listen to this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he sent his son to absorb the full anger and wrath of God against our sins so that God's wrath could be turned into favor toward us. He sent Jesus to do that for us. Why? Because he loves us. So let me ask you, loved ones, what is it in your life right now that is eroding your confidence in the truth that you are loved by God? 
What is it going on in your life right now? What are, what are you holding on to too tightly? What, what are you thinking about? What, what are you anticipating coming up later this week or later this month or, or maybe later this year? Maybe you're even looking ahead a little bit to Thanksgiving dinner and a meal around the table with unsaved family and friends and, and you know the conversation's gonna go in a bunch of different directions and you're thinking already, like, how do I bring it back to the gospel? How do I bring it back to Jesus? Like, turn to him. What are you holding on to so tightly in your life that it's eroding your confidence in the reality that you are loved by God? Augustine said it like this. He said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Now, there's only one me and there's only one you, and we all say praise the Lord for that, right? Um, But what Augustine is saying here is that even if you or I were the only one that God ever created in his image and for his glory to live on the face of this earth, he still would have sent his son to die in our place and for our sins. Why? Because he loves us. Guarantee number one, we are loved by God. Here's guarantee number two. We are changed by God. We are changed by God. Notice verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This right here is the essence of this new covenant that God is making with his people. In the Old Testament, they would write the law on scrolls or on tablets of stone and then the religious leaders of the community would encourage the people to internalize the law. They would encourage them to memorize it so they had access to it no matter where they went or what they did or what time it was. And so now, in this passage, God is coming to the people and God is making the promise that instead of the people having to internalize God's law into their hearts, that God is the one who is going to internalize it for them. The problem is, Remember what Jeremiah says about our hearts? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Like, left to ourselves, we will live always and only for ourselves, which should help us then to realize how absolutely astounding God's love is for us. Like knowing that that is true, knowing that our hearts are so desperately sick, so desperately wicked, and that we will, more often than not, left to ourselves, choose our sin rather than choose our Savior. Knowing all of that, God now is coming to his people and saying, I love you so much that from the moment that I save you, I am going to implant my word so deeply into your heart that it will supernaturally change you from the inside out. That is amazing. See, when we enter into this new covenant relationship with God, we need to understand that God changes us. God begins this process of changing us, which is why it's so important for us to understand that at that moment when God comes to you and he saves you, it is not just a matter of you putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's important, obviously, but it is also a matter of repentance, It's also a matter of turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ to be your Savior. In other words, 
You cannot keep the things within your life that you have held on to for safety and security up until the moment of your salvation and then simply tack those things on to your faith in Jesus Christ and hope that that's going to be enough to get you through the storms of this life and then safely into heaven when you die. That's not the way that it works. It's not the way that God designed redemption to be. Instead, there must be an intentional decision to turn away from your sin to turn away from your self-sufficiency, to turn away from your pride and turn to Jesus Christ. Here's what it comes down to. If you claim that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, but you regularly need to be convinced to worship Him or to pray or to read your Bible or to learn some of the deeper truths about what God has done in order to save us from our sins, if you need to be regularly convinced to serve the body of Christ or to give, whether it's give financially or give your resources or give your time or whatever it may be, if you need to regularly be convinced to go and tell other people within your life or even across the world about the good news that Jesus has died in our place and for our sins and he can save if we will believe in him, if you need to be regularly convinced to lead your family in the ways of the Lord, like if these sorts of things are not routinely happening within your life and you need to be routinely convinced that these things should be happening within your life, then the problem may very well be that it's not the outward circumstances around you that are making it difficult for you to do those things. The problem may very well be that your heart has not been changed. The problem may be that you may not be saved. Because when God comes to us and we enter into this new covenant relationship with him, he very intentionally begins this process of changing us so that we will be more like Jesus Christ. See, you might be living your life, if, if that describes you, if you need to routinely be convinced of these things, you might be living your life in such a way that Jesus is nothing more than your functional savior. That Jesus happens to be the one who has saved you from your sin and he's rescued you from hell and you're going to heaven when you die, but he's not your Lord. Because he doesn't control the things that you think and the things that you say and the things that you do and the things that you feel and the desires that you have. Instead, he's just the one who has saved you from hell and he's given you heaven. He's nothing more than your functional savior. We need to understand that when we come into this relationship with God, the change is non-negotiable. God begins this process of changing us from the inside out and he gives us new desires in our hearts that then affect the behavior and the ways that we live our life. That's the whole story of scripture. We see it so many times in so many different places. In fact, when we get to the end of verse 33, God says here, the end of verse 33, he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So keep in mind the bigger picture here. When God begins this process of changing us, it's not just that he gives us a desire for his word and for his work and for his ways. He does give us those desires, absolutely. But we need to understand that when God comes after us, God gets us. And when God gets us, we get God. Like, think about this. If you are saved in Jesus Christ right now at this very moment, you have the fullness of God in Jesus Christ within your life. So let me ask you right now, like, what is it that you're going through? What is it that's keeping you awake at night? 
What is it that turns your stomach every time you think about it and it creates so much anxiety and so much fear and so much worry and maybe you have uncertainty about something that's coming up later on and, and you don't know what it's going to be like. Maybe, maybe you're looking ahead to your future and you have no idea what's coming down the pipe for you and, and it makes you afraid. Like What's going on within your life right now that you need to give to Jesus Christ in faith as your Savior who will help you? Whatever that is, see, see, the beauty of the gospel is that whatever that is right now across this room, what I want you to hear is that right now in Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need from him to get through what you're going through. You have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. And so as you depend on him to give you what you need in the midst of your circumstance, he then is committed to this process of changing you to make you more like him. That's a gift of his grace. So we are changed by God. Here's guarantee number three. We are welcomed by God. We are welcomed by God. Notice the first part of verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Man, when... When you start to see all of these pieces of this puzzle coming together, this is absolutely astounding. We are welcomed by God. We know God. Our mission in this church is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We are committed to being disciples who make disciples. We're committed to, uh, to going and telling other people that they need to know God that they need to know this creator God who from before the foundations of the world put this plan of redemption into place whereby he would send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place for our sins, to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death and to rise again from the dead and that if we believe in him, if we place our faith in him, that we will have victory over sin and death because he has victory over sin and death and that unless people believe in him, that they will spend all of eternity separated from this glorious God in a real place called hell. Now this is the only way that there is to know God. Like we are committed to proclaiming this message in love and in grace and, and in truth. And yet we look at this passage and God here is describing a day when evangelism like that won't even be necessary because all of the people who are in the presence of God will know God. That word know here in verse 34, it it doesn't mean that you just know a person's character or, or you know some of their attributes. It's not just knowing their power or being able to watch them and see certain things that they do. Instead, this word know refers to an intimate relationship that describes how the fullness of our existence, the fullness of the existence of the two parties in the relationship is fully committed to one another. It's an intimate relationship whereby the fullness of the existence of both parties is committed to one another. So think about this. We know God now because of Jesus Christ. But there is coming a day, loved ones, when we will struggle with sin no more. There is coming a day when 
when sin will be gone. It will be forever defeated and we will struggle with it no more. But there's another side to that very same coin. When we are in the presence of God, not only will the struggle of sin be gone, but the fullness of our minds and our wills and our emotions will be fully in tune with the glory of God. Like, just think about this. There is coming a day when we will be in the presence of God and the only song that we sing is the song of praise to God. Like we have been welcomed by him. We know him in this intimate relationship whereby the fullness of our existence is given completely and totally to him. In fact, God says this in verse 34. Notice again when he says, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So you can walk out into those hallways right now and into those classrooms and they are full of children in our Harvest Kids ministry and there are young people in our youth ministry and young adults in this church and there are adults in this church of all different shapes and sizes and backgrounds and nationalities and races and and so many different backgrounds that are represented here, and, and we know God. We know God through faith in Jesus Christ, but, but the problem that we have is that we're going to walk out of here in, in about 20 minutes, half an hour, and, and we're going to go back into a world. We're going to go back, some of us, into homes or into workplaces tomorrow or back into classrooms tomorrow or wherever it is that God takes us this week, and we are going to see firsthand, up close and personal, how broken this world actually is. And what God is saying here in this passage is that there is coming a day when all of that will be gone. When all of that will be gone because God has taken the initiative to come to us because God loves us and he has put this plan of redemption into motion through his only son, Jesus Christ, and all of that will be wiped away. And all of us, all of us who are in the presence of God will know him forever. Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16 says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Do you ever worry if God knows what you're going through? you ever wonder, God, like, do you know what I'm feeling right now? Do you know how hard this is for me right now? Do you know how long this has been going on, Lord? Do you know how much easier it would be if you just said the word and, and all of this was gone? If you're dealing with that right now, if that's part of what you're going through, I want you to hear so clearly right now. God's got you. He's got you. Okay? So when God looks at the palms of his own hands, he sees you. He sees me. We are engraved on the palms of his hands. So no matter what you might be going through right now and no matter how hard it might be, you need to hear, God's got you. and He will hold you. He will take care of you. We are welcomed by God. We know God. Here's guarantee number four. 
we are forgiven by God. We are forgiven by God. Take a look again at the end of verse 34. God says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Boy, this is good news, loved ones. Our sin has been dealt with. One of the main theological categories that we put this into is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now, some of you are like, time out, pastor. I'm not sure I can understand that, let alone even remember that. Um, Let me challenge you with this. If you walk into Starbucks and you walk up to the counter and you order your half-calf, double-decaf, grande, americano, this, that, la-di-da, frappuccino, double chocolate chip, this and that, whatever it is, hold the whip, like whatever. Like if you walk into Starbucks and that just rolls off your tongue, I am confident that every one of us can remember penal substitutionary atonement, all right? So what does this mean? Let's break this down according to each word. First of all, penal. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. Isaiah 53, Pastor Kyle looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Read throughout other passages in the New Testament, Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, 1 John 4, Romans 3, all talk about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. Again, meaning that Jesus absorbs the fullness of God's wrath against our sin and turns it into favor for us with God. So Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. Then the next word, substitutionary, means exactly what it says. Jesus died in our place. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus died in our place. And then the final word, atonement, Jesus' finished work makes us one with God by covering our sins. Jesus' finished work makes us one with God by covering over our sins. Listen, loved ones, Jesus Christ is our penal substitutionary atonement. And that is good news for us. Now, there are some within evangelical circles today, meaning there are some who would place place themselves under uh, the larger tent that we would place ourselves under, some in evangelical circles today who are leading an all-out assault on the beauty of this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. There are people, even here in close, close by to us, not that far, names you would probably recognize if I were to say them, who are leading an all-out assault on this, and, and they're taking this doctrine, and they're just walking away from it and saying there's no way that God could do this. No way that God could throw down punishment on his only son. I mean, how could a loving God do something like this? God, who is the author of love, God, who is pure love in himself, how could he possibly do that if he loves his son so much? Why would he let his son go through that kind of punishment? Some even take it to the extent of saying that this is divine child abuse, that that a father would let his son endure something like this. And so they take this doctrine and they walk away from it saying that this is simply too shocking. This is too graphic. This is far too horrific. And you know what? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be shocking that Jesus would pay the penalty for our sins. 
It's supposed to be shocking that Jesus would go to the cross, no sin in him, and that he would bear the full weight of our sin on the cross in our place, all for the express purpose of making us one with God and covering over all of our sins. That should shock us to our very core. But it should not leave us there. Because if we begin to understand how beautiful and how glorious this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is, this should drive us then to a deep and profound place of humility before God where we realize, God, you love me so much that you would do something like this for me. And then it should take us from that place of quiet humility and lead us to a passion and to a zeal for God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered worship for the glory of our beautiful God, that he would do any of this for us. For all of the assaults on penal substitutionary atonement, I have to think that It's little more than an attempt by those who are embarrassed by parts of God. They're trying to make God and, by extension, trying to make themselves more palatable to satisfy a world that one day will neither know God nor will they see him unless they first accept the truth of who he is and all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. So let's be clear. As a church, this is the gospel on which we stand. This is the rock-solid gospel on which we stand. This is the gospel that shapes what we preach and what we teach. This is the gospel that shapes how we worship and how we evangelize and how we pray. This is the gospel that shapes our mission and it shapes our identity. This is the gospel that shapes who we are and what we do and where we go and why we go to those places. This is the rock-solid gospel on which we will stand and we will be kept forever by our God. Let me ask you, how will you respond to Jesus? Knowing that this is what he has done for you. This is what he has done for me. How will you respond to him? I mean, just look at this. Look at the, the beauty of this forgiveness. The end of verse 34 again, he says, I will remember their sins no more. That word remember there means to call to mind. God will never remind you tomorrow of sin that you committed yesterday. Isaiah 38, verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare, Isaiah says, that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. We've talked a little bit about this before, but there's this this part of your back that you can't see, right? The, the very bottom part, that small in your back that, that you simply can't see no matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how you bend or how you shake or how you move. You just can't see it unless you're like double or triple jointed, but that's just gross. So there's no, there's no way that you can see that little part of your back unless you're looking at it in a mirror. And Isaiah says here that God takes all of our sins and he throws them behind him to the place where he will no longer see them, and he will call them to mind no more. 
we have been forgiven by God. This is the essence of the new covenant. God has made a way for our sins to be forgiven. Later, of course, when Jesus comes, Jesus is the initiator of this new covenant for us. And uh, keep in mind that here in Jeremiah 31, these promises are being made to the nations of Israel and Judah. But because Christ has initiated this new covenant for us and because we are in him, we get to enjoy these spiritual blessings and benefits. In fact, before Jesus died on the cross, shares the last supper with his disciples and they've already broken the bread together and, and Jesus says this in Luke 22, verse 20. He says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So today as people who do not live in Israel and Judah, we get the spiritual benefits and the blessings of this new covenant because Jesus Christ has shed his blood in our place so that we could be made one with God. So the next time that we have communion, and we take the bread and the cup, we need to remember that this is not something that we just tack on to the end of our service or we drop somewhere in the middle out of some sense of obligation that we need to do this again. No, that's not what this is about at all. But instead, when we take that bread and we hold that cup in our hands, this is a very solemn reminder of the price that has been paid on our behalf at the cross where Jesus Christ shed his blood for us so that we could be made one with God and our sins could be covered. Loved ones, don't lose the significance of that moment. We are forgiven by God. One more guarantee. Number five, we are kept by God until the end. We are kept by God until the end. Take a look again at verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord." Notice here, verse 36, God says Israel will be a nation forever before him. He will keep his people to the end. And because now that we are in Jesus Christ, we enjoy the spiritual blessing and that benefit as well, that we are kept until the end because of the finished work of Christ. Here in these couple of verses, God makes reference to the vastness and the fullness of his creation Verse 35, he talks about the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea. Verse 36, the fixed order of creation. Verse 37, the heavens above and the foundations of the earth below. Like we simply cannot fathom the fullness and how amazing God's creation actually is. And for everything that we do know about God's creation, it is still so magnificently complex that we will never be able to fully understand it. But what God is doing here in these verses is he is using the regular rhythms of his creation to illustrate his faithfulness to his people. 
So in other words, God is coming to the people and he is saying to them, you know what? It would be easier for the sun to stop shining. And it would be easier for the moon and the stars to be extinguished. It would be easier for the sea just to be swallowed up into itself than it would be for God to break his promises of faithfulness to his people. Like, think about this. God has fixed creation in its place according to the purpose of his will, and nothing changes the rhythms of God's creation. You're like, what do you mean? Well, sun comes up and sun goes down. The waves come in and the waves go out. The stars come out and the stars go back. And it doesn't matter how hard we try to change that. It doesn't matter how hard we try to stop that. There is nothing we can do to change any of that. And the beautiful thing about this for us is that the power of God that was displayed in creating the universe for his glory is the same power that keeps us as God's people to the very end for his glory. That's what God is saying here. Just think about that. The vastness of God's creation and all of his power that is on display in creation for his glory is the very same power that keeps you and me as his people unto the end for his glory. Think of it like this. There is no power in all of the universe that is able to disrupt the rhythms of God's creation. And in the very same way, there is no power in all of the universe that is able to disrupt the eternal reality that you belong to God. And you will be kept forever by him. Verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Uh, Apparently, these are specific locations in and around the city of Jerusalem. Verse 40 mentions a valley whereby pagans would bring their infant children and burn them as sacrifices to their pagan gods. It was absolutely detestable. And yet, God says here in these few verses that he is going to take even those places and make them sacred to the Lord. So God here is saying that he alone has the power to take the very worst parts of who we are, the worst parts of us that that seem so far gone and so long forgotten that God alone has the power to take those worst parts and redeem them. And not only does God have the power to redeem them, but God also has the power to change them. And not only does God have the power to change them, but God has the power to use them for his glory. And not only does God have the power to use them for his glory, but God also has the power to keep them unto the very end for his glory. That's the promise that he makes to you and me. The end of verse 40, he says, it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. We are kept by God until the end. Five guarantees that if you have turned away from your sin and turned to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that you can be absolutely 100% 
totally certain that these promises are for you.